broadcasting live from the basement because this little setup here is where I've been doing my Fox News hits, and I've been meaning to work this home studio into my live audio podcast, which will be a video and an audio podcast at the same time. One of the things that I meant to do when I set up the local site, but I haven't done it yet, is to talk to some of the members of the local site and, you know, make them a part of the show. So there's a number of people who we interact with there on tom.locals.com, and I thought I would, you know, chat with people. This first guest is a guy who used to be basically a regular on my radio show. Anyone who remembers the old radio show would hear various characters, including Pastor Adam, who would call in from, I believe it was Georgia. So let's see if we can get Pastor Adam on the line here. Yeah, look at that. Special effects. Pastor Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. You know, you look good. Oh, you thank you so much, on. Tom. Is it Georgia? Where are you from in Georgia? Yeah, Marietta, which is a northwest suburb of Atlanta. Georgia, always growing, always in the news. First of all, Pastor Adam, how are you? How's everything? How was the, your 4th of July weekend? Uh, it was a really good weekend, uh, a very busy weekend. We actually had folks from out of town up and up through Saturday. I'm originally from Mississippi, and so a friend that I grew up with, he and his family from Mississippi were with us uh, through Saturday. He also pastors a church in a tiny little town in, in Mississippi, and so they had to get back. But uh, then we had church services uh, Sunday morning. Um, the kids had just come back Friday from uh, from a camp they were at in Kentucky. And so my buddy and I drove up there to pick them up and drove back and went straight from camp to meet the family, both of our families, at the uh, the Braves game that Friday night. And uh, so Saturday was pretty chill that afternoon. We grilled some burgers that evening and just spent some time together as a family that night. And you uh, – how has church been in you know the covid situation who uh, you know who did you have to answer to in terms of capacity in terms of having people in were you restricted what what happened there so so we we're kind of a nomadic church we don't own our own, we don't own property or anything and so when covid hit we were actually renting from a public high school we were meeting in there. They called it the Black Box Theater. Is this really neat black? I mean, totally blacked out studio. It was really perfect for us. But uh, as soon as COVID hit, um, I guess it was it was Thursday evening in mid March. We were what three weeks into Lent, I think. We were preparing for that Sunday service, and boom, we we got the announcement that the following day the schools would shut down and that no outside groups would be meeting uh, for the foreseeable future. So we went from being a church that had zero online presence other than just a website. And uh, we had a Facebook page and a Facebook group, but we didn't stream any of our services. We did none of that. And that Thursday evening, uh, we found out, Hey, you're going to have to do something for Sunday because you're not going to be meeting in person. And, um, uh, but you know, we don't have, I'm a part of a, a group of independent Methodist churches, so we don't have a bishop that we answer to. Uh, we do have, you know, we, we do have folks in, in leadership over us, uh, but it's very much kind of a co-op church community type uh, situation, denominationally at, at least. And so I answer to the board at our church, but I also 
lead the board in our church. And so we're very kind of lay driven, but also pastor led. And so we just, uh, with the board, we figured out uh, what what's the way forward. How do we continue meeting? We met online for a few weeks until we were able to find another spot in our community where we could meet. And uh, pretty quickly, we were able, in fact, our uh, this past Sunday was our one year anniversary of meeting in a bowling alley. We found a local bowling alley that uh, we reached out to and said, hey, could we have our services there? It's a small group, uh, a small, small family church, and uh, we'd love to meet there if at all possible. And so our first Sunday there was actually July the 5th, wow. and, which was this past Monday. So Sunday the 4th, we were able to celebrate kind of a, a one-year meeting in, uh, it's called the Stratosphere Lounge, which is a really funny name. Uh, but it's it's tucked in right next to a bar at um, at our local uh, bowling alley. So you were able to. You're talking about July of 2020. You started service 2020. Yeah, July of yeah. 2020. July 5th That's of great. 2020. It. Yeah. So I, I do feel like a bit of a baby <laughs> shutting down at all. But we we really had no other options. Uh, we actually I mean, the high school kicked um, you out. We basically. had small groups that were. What? Well, yeah. But I mean, they were always really good hosts to us. So I don't want to say anything, um, you know, unpresentable about them. They 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 were very gracious. They basically their hands were tied with the county, yeah. and the county's hands were tied with the with the state, and the state's hands were tied just by I guess our our uh, kind of the group think of 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 uh, of the, of our country and and the world really as everyone's kind of panicking and yeah so. Yeah, we, we went from being a nomadic church to suddenly a homeless church, and we continued having some small group meetings in different people's homes. Uh, one of those met in our home, and we you know continued doing Bible study. We we had all of our Lenten services, but they were just done online. And then with what within a couple of months, we were able to find this new location to meet, and we've been meeting there ever since. And actually, it's very just an awesome place for us. They've been very welcoming and accommodating. Uh, just really the textbook uh, example of hospitality we found in this local bowling alley. And uh, in fact, one of the managers came in this past Sunday and, and uh, uh, received communion with us. She asked, hey, if you are doing communion, can I come in? And we said, sure. That's great. And so it's been a really interesting Nobody thing. Nobody was coming down on them as far as their, they were private business. But a lot of businesses, certainly in New York, you could not have... <clears throat> A bowling alley they wouldn't have allowed it but there hmm. were they riding under the radar or did the local marietta officials allow the bowling alley to do that or what well so it's it is it's right outside of marietta so they don't answer to the city of marietta but um they did have to meet certain protocols with their local with the local um uh what it what's it called department of of health and human services. I'm not sure what, yeah. what department it is, but on the county level, there were guidelines they were having to meet. So we, so we were limited as far as how many we could have, but the room that we meet in is, is far larger than what we would necessarily, far, far larger than what we, what is necessary for us. Uh, so what we do is actually, we've got these large round tables and families kind of cluster together and meet around these tables. So everyone actually is, very distant socially, but we're meeting at these tables. And so, uh, so it looks like the room is full, but it's really, we're about at not even at half capacity. And when we first started meeting, we had a smaller group than we've got now, uh, because, you know, we still have some folks who haven't come back. Um, 
and uh, but when, when we when we started meeting there, we were kind of at a third of the capacity of the place. But they they met all the standards that were laid out at the county level. Uh, they they had regular inspections to make sure everything was being sanitized properly and whatnot. And um, yeah, as a private alley. business, they were and able I feel to. Like they to were host already this. sanitizing. Yeah, those bowling they were always spraying oh. your shoes down and everything. <laughs> Yeah, no, there is that. But it's really funny because they've they've had to invest. So many of these private companies have had to invest in things to renovate and change and whatnot. And it's really weird. They've got these like new drill type things that spray whatever chemical it is that's supposed to disinfect stuff. It's really weird. But um, yeah, they were already used to getting out the Lysol cans. The only good thing that they did with renovations was the uh, the ventilation systems. Um, you know, at my place of work in Fox News, they put an entirely new, these big ventilation systems, and you got big vents in all the offices, and you can feel the air moving about the building much better now. Other than that, I don't believe any of that spray nonsense works, but the question yeah. I have for you, which is, I don't know if you have an answer for it, but I, I tend to ask religious people this all year. This is a running conversation I have. Why do you think that in general religious people freaked out less than non-religious people i mean that wasn't obviously it's not universal across the board but you could see the uh, the stories of the churches that were staying open and some of them were running into problems with health health officials and they were uh, thumbing their mm-hmm. nose at health officials and saying no we're going to worship anyway uh, other people they they followed the rules but they uh, you know, they freaked out less. Uh, I think, in general, I find the more religious people, the more religious you are, the less freaked out you were about COVID. What's your theory on that? So, so I, I really have a couple of theories that kind of would approach that at, at kind of opposing ang- angles. Um, one is that uh, anecdotally, I don't know that I don't know that there is, I don't know that the church has fared so much better than, than, than non-church people. Um, just because I've got neighbors, they don't, don't go to church at all. Some of them probably bought into the hysteria and then others. And I say that not to be dismissive. I, I'm not trying to, to act like there's nothing going on. I, I'm just kind of speaking into the situation as it is. But um, so I've got neighbors who are, irreligious they don't go to church and they're not freaked out at all they're you know hitting the lake constantly they're um they're they're out mingling with with one another all the time uh and then i have religious but you know i have religious friends and neighbors and and uh folks in our own congregation who uh who really have taken um uh they've taken their social life has taken quite a bit of hit we'll put it that way uh, they're not getting out nearly like they were. Uh, they aren't. Some of them aren't aren't yet coming back to church. Uh, we've got. I, I talked to the buddy just yesterday because we're planning for youth camps that are coming up uh, uh, within the next few weeks. I talked to the buddy who's actually in the ministry as well, full time, and he said that they've still got some some capacities in their church that aren't meeting yet, and they've got they've had to shut down their youth camp because of other churches that don't have youth groups functioning, and. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of a mix of both. But from the other angle, why religious people would fare better is number one. I think the obvious thing is that we had just we had just marked Ash Wednesday what two weeks prior to COVID hitting, 
And so it was almost as a pastor, it was almost a sense in which I want to tell my people like, hold, hold, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, from dust, you have come to dust, you will return. You, you are going to die. And that's not to be morbid. That's simply to be sobering and realistic about how, you know, the most important thing you can do in life is live because everybody that's ever lived has died and, uh, and is going to. And so I do think that there is kind of a, there's a sobering grounding uh, that religious pe- people who take their faith seriously that they have. Now, if you're just kind of a nominal church gro- churchgoer and church attendance and participation really has no effect on your daily life or the way you see the world or the way you see yourself or the way you see your neighbor, then yeah, I, I think I think that uh, there's there's less of that religious grounding that that uh, that you would have in your faith because your faith really is you know kind of a an addendum to your life. And so when everything hits the fan, the faith can be something that kind of is set aside because it's not something that really shapes and forms and fills, um, your, your life as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the people in your church, would you say that they, was it like 50, 50 that, you know, it was about, you kind of lost half your people. They, they didn't want to come to services. No, not not quite 50-50. We probably had, um, and we started, as, as soon as everything hit, we started participating in these surveys. We were sending out surveys weekly for a few weeks, trying to get a feel for how our people are doing. Uh, I was making more phone calls than ever before, calling people daily. Uh, not the same people daily, but every day I was making phone calls to reach out to our people and figure out, how's everybody doing? How's everybody doing emotionally? Uh, as a familially, as a family, how are they doing economically? Uh, how are they doing, you know, uh, medically? Is anybody being affected? And so we pretty quickly started evaluating who's wanting to get back together. And one of the things that we were seeing almost across the board, not entirely, but probably at an 80 to 90% level was folks said, we want to get back together. Um, we we're really, we're struggling and that's really after only a couple of months in of doing everything online except for small group small group gatherings folks were telling me and and the funny thing is uh some of these folks were the most at risk the older yeah. folks in the church said you know what I, I i miss my people i miss my church family and i'm having a really hard time just staying at home i can't keep this up we've got to to meet we were we were streaming our services from our house actually just in our living room in living room in front of the fireplace fire wasn't lit but uh, it added a little bit of ambiance and uh, our kids were doing some scripture readings and um, and whatnot and we had folks in the church saying we want to come over for that can we be there on Sunday mornings just to just to be near somebody that's not a part of my household and so um, uh, you know our congregation at the, our congregation is small. Um, but but there were there were really only three or four families that at first said, hey, we we can't we can't meet in person yet. And and all of those across the board, they all have legitimate health concerns. They do have um, they, they do have uh, some serious conditions. And um, and so I, I do get that. But at the same time, we've, we had others who said we've just got to meet in person. Yeah, it's interesting what you said. I noticed there were a lot of people who you would describe as vulnerable people. The oldest, uh, yeah, the oldest people sometimes were 
they weren't going to hide in their homes. And I, you talk to the people and they say, look, I got five. Maybe if all goes swimmingly well, I got a decade left of life. You know, so you're talking to someone who's 79, 82, whatever. I got five, maybe 10 years. You want me to sit alone by myself for mm. one-tenth of the remainder of my life? One-twentieth? You know, one, uh, 20% of the remainder of my life? So a lot of these old people said, look, I don't have that much time either. I'm not going to spend it hiding. So they were getting out there. And their kids were saying, Mom, you can't do this. You can't go to jail. And they said, listen, don't worry about me. I'm going to live my life. So it was kind of interesting to see that. Yeah. That generational thing. Yeah. I, yeah. So so a lot of a lot of our kind of local ministry stuff kind of came to a screeching halt because of all the protocols and whatnot. And, um, and a lot of the, a lot of the ways in which we tangibly minister to folks in our community that are vulnerable, uh, at risk youth and whatnot, it had to just completely stop or, or be paused at least. And it, and some of that is, most of that is still paused, but some of the things that then started opening up is, um, I've actually, for the last few weeks, I've been making, they call them warm calls, not cold calls, but these people know that they're getting phone calls. They know it's because they are, uh, part of a vulnerable aging population. And I'm, I've been making phone calls to, uh, to the same clients for a number of weeks now, and it'll continue for a few, few more weeks and just assessing, Hey, how you doing? Tell me about your week, spending 20 to 30 minutes on the phone with them. Um, just kind of getting to know them and let them know that, Hey, somebody's here that really cares and is willing to listen, even though we've never met and they're all over Georgia. And, uh, it's part of a grant program that, uh, that I got involved with, but, um, I say all that to say a lot of these people, some of them are in their 90s, most of them are in their 80s, a few are in their 70s, and uh, and they tell me their family is freaked out. They, you know, won't won't come around. They haven't seen family in in, in a, over a year now. They haven't seen all their friends from the senior center in over a year now because the senior center hadn't even opened up. And some of them, their churches are still doing exclusively online. And they've told me some of them granted are concerned and this probably because they're sitting around watching news 24 7 but others uh have said look i'm old i know i'm going to die if it's not this it's cancer or if it's not that it's going to be a heart attack or a stroke i definitely don't want to die alone in my house yeah and it can bring it on i mean the the, the being oh. isolated is such a health risk mm. for old people because when they are isolated when they don't have human interaction then they physically start to mm. Uh, fall apart, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Well, the, and, and honestly, you see you see the rise in, in deaths of despair. You see a rise in alcoholism and substance abuse and, you know, self-medicating and whatnot. You see all that. And they're, they're, they're like two main contributing factors to suicide, to someone being at the risk of suicide. And one of those is isolation. Yeah. And the other is a feeling of helplessness. And so these are people who, who, are completely isolated and they're isolated beyond their own wishes and they can't do anything about it. So boom, you've got, you've got the double edged sword there of I'm completely alone and I can't not be alone. And so, you know, it, 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 I, I think for, I think for the, over the course of the next 10 to 20 years or more, we're going to, we're going to be seeing really what are the societal effects of how we handle this situation and I don't think we handled it well. <laughs> That's true. This Sunday, I was in 
uh, mass and the priest at his sermon, he, he threw in a little politics. He was talking about the 4th of July and he was saying, we have a great country that was founded on Judeo-Christian values. People are getting away from that. They're falling away from not only church, they're falling away from the Judeo-Christian values. Then he mentioned the, uh, the founding fathers and their um, belief that uh, human beings were created in God's image. He mentioned mm -hmm. cancel culture, and he mentioned woke culture. He didn't seem to mm -hmm. have a good definition of what those things were, but he said, look, it's all socialism. It's all Marxism, which is a bad thing, and we know we should reject it. A woman stormed out of mm. church. She stood up and she oh. said, I don't want that in church. This is not the right place. And she stormed out. Another guy stood up and applauded. So there was a little bit of controversy going on in church. And it was, he really wasn't being overtly political. He wasn't telling mm. people who to vote for. But he was talking about the political issues of the day in his sermon. Mm. Is that something you, you know, how do you deal with people who are Christian, but may differ politically. Do you ever get feedback from people? Hey, Pastor Adam, uh, you know, knock it off with the political talk or whatever. I mean, no, um, yeah. that's the short answer. Yep. Um, I don't, I don't get, I don't get overtly political. Uh, I do get subversively political. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I think part part of what it is to preach is to is to lay before people a vision of life as it ought to be and part of that has to do with pointing to the brokenness of of life yeah. uh whether that be you know marital or emotional personal relational spiritual uh and sometimes even communal you know what is politics it's it's about the ordering of society and so and so even if you're not talking about particular candidates or even particular issues, anytime you're talking about the breakdown of community and the breakdown of, of society, it is, it is necessarily political, even if it's, um, even if it seems like it's inadvertently uh, political. And so, um, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not the type of pastor who's constantly railing on cultural ills or political woes or anything like that. Um, but what I am doing is I am trying to, uh, to, to, to capture the imaginations, the spiritual imaginations of my people and, uh, and, and point them toward a better story than the story that they're hearing on the news or in movies and that sort of stuff. And so sometimes, yes, I'll, I'll have to address political issues or things that we think of as explicitly political issues, but I tend to do it in a way that is, um, that is more from a moral approach and a biblical approach and less of a directly or kind of on the nose political approach. Did you ever have someone in a service stand up and applaud and someone else, you know, walk out, anything like that? Uh, no, I mean, I've had some folks shout amen and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I don't recall ever having somebody walk out in protest. You know, I've got kids that'll walk out to go to the bathroom, <laughs> but, uh, I don't think that's ever out of protest. Um, it, I, and I, and I don't remember, I, I have had folks come to me and say, wow, that, that sermon. And, and, and in fact, one of those, uh, is by, uh, I say he's a younger guy. He's not, he's younger than I am. 
um, and I'm not all that young anymore, but uh, he did say that one of his favorite sermons it, it was one of his first sermons, and I, I actually quoted Thomas Jefferson in it, and he's a big political, uh, he's, he's, he's really involved in politics and loves uh, politics, and you know, I, so I'll quote Madison or, 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 or Jefferson or someone like that, but not in a way that's then like trying to attack something uh, that's a current political topic or whatever. Yeah. On Georgia, what's going on down there in Georgia? We got, it's very much now a, you know, Georgia used to be a red state. Now they're talking like, you know, mm. the elections are going both ways now. Is that a function of just Atlanta getting to be one of the biggest cities and attracting a, you know, kind of a more metropolitan crowd or, you know, what, what's going on in Georgia? I mean, so I, I think it's partly that I do think in this last, um, in this last election and then the runoff, I think there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, maybe even, maybe even self-harming, uh, defiance, you know, there was there was a feeling among some on on the right that that things were shady, that that you know we shouldn't be in this situation, and this is because people were spineless, or this is because yeah. people didn't didn't respond appropriately. The governor the governor wasn't strong enough. Uh, you know, they let let all these shenanigans be gotten away with, and that sort of thing. So I do think there was a major protest sit at home vote, uh, which is to say not voting, especially in the runoff. Um, it's, I think that's a lot to do with it. I think if, I, I think if, um, yeah, if, if either party, if either party gets too comfortable with their, with, with their, with their victories or, or with their trend of victory. So if the Democrat party gets comfortable with their previous win and thinks, Oh, Hey, we've got, we've got Georgia locked in. It's, it's now a reliably purple state and, you know, do a little bit of campaigning, right? We'll, we can turn it blue in any given election. I think if they, if they rest too much on that, they're going to find themselves greatly disappointed. But then again, if the, if they're, if the Republicans say, Hey, look, we're traditionally a red state. This last election was just a fluke we're, everything's cool. we we'll continue as normal. I think they're going to be greatly disappointed. Uh, I think, I do think Georgia really is a toss up. The folks here, they're very emotional. Uh, it's I'm not originally from uh, Georgia. I grew up in Mississippi and things are a little slower moving down there. I mean, I've got my Braves hat here. Let me tell you, if the Braves lose a single game, the fans go insane. They'll throw their hats across the room. Georgia, the, the UGA fans, of which I am one, um, they get very emotional when Georgia loses a game. If they don't win at all, they're the worst team and they ought to fire the coach. And it's so it's a very – there and, and and really politics has become sport over these uh over these last few years and uh so i think our politics in georgia is very much like our sports in georgia we are we're a very emotional people and we'll sit home if we don't like what's happening and so um i, I do think georgia is it's going to have to start being thought of as a toss up state uh, but that's not to say that it's you know it's not to say that it's becoming more blue than ever before or anything like that. Um, I don't think. Yeah. The, uh, your, uh, what do you call your people? Parishioners flock? What do you, what do you, what do you call your, yeah. 
my, 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 my parishioners, I, I like to think of my wife blogs and she runs a blog called notes from the parsonage. And so I use parishioner parson language, uh, uh, affectionately because it, you know, those are archaisms, I guess, in our culture. But, uh, yeah, my parishioners. Do they come to you and ask you why, uh, for instance, you got COVID last year. We were talking about that, right? Yeah. COVID, you know, it, doesn't seem like there's any use to these things. You know, you talk about, you can ask, why did God make sharks? Oh, well, wait a minute. The sharks eat this fish, and then, you know, they're really, they help out marine. Yeah. Why did God make mosquitoes? And then you find out, wow, mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. I was going to say, is he going to ask about mosquitoes? Yeah. (laughs) So people always ask these questions. Do they ask, Pastor, you know, what's God's angle on on COVID? You know, why, why do we have diseases? I mean, this is the the eternal questions that people yeah. ask, and sometimes yeah. you can answer the little details, but when you get to the big questions, like why is there suffering? Why does God allow it? What's your answer to that, to people? Mm. I mean, so, so my, so my sarcastic reply, which <laughs> typically when somebody asks me that, they, I've got a, I've got some history with them, and so they really do want me to be serious with them. They, you know, they want my honest answer, and they know that they know that I'm someone who, who comes at things from a variety of angles. I try to have as much nuance as I can, and so I'll typically, I'll typically lead with something a little sarcastic and, and say essentially, you know, at what point do you want God to stop intervening? Because you know there are a number of things that we do in life that probably put ourselves at risk. You want God to just not allow you to do it. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, I think that is actually a very helpful question to help us keep kind of a frame and perspective on what we're really getting at with that question. Because what we're really getting at is how do we, how do we have a God that is all powerful and all loving who creates us, as you mentioned in his image in the Imago day. um, which part of that involves creativity, part of that involves freedom, uh, probably freedom even more than even before creativity. And one of the things that that does is free people can do things that probably aren't wise. And I say that as a major understatement. And, you know, we can concoct things in a lab that might put ourselves and, and others in, in harm's way. And that's not to say dogmatically that that's what happened here. But we live in a world that is fallen, that is broken, that is bent, uh, to use Lewis's um, expression from his science uh, fiction trilogy. Um, we live in a world that is that is broken, and that brokenness is because of our freedom. It's because of our being made in God's image. And I'm for, I'm I'm grateful that we have a God that does intervene, that does the miraculous, that does. Um, uh, that does guide human history, but also that he is a God that does not do so, at least from my theological perspective, he does not do so meticulously to the point where there is no human freedom. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I've got, uh, I, one of the things I do to kind of as a side hustle is I teach, I teach for a couple of schools, um, one is here in the States and the other's in Haiti. And in fact, one of the, one of the times I called into your show, I was actually in Miami, uh, switching planes and, uh, Tass, I think was on, I think she and Andrea were in studio. It was maybe their first trip to, uh, to, to New York to be in studio. And I called 
on my way back from Haiti, but the Haitians, apparently, I haven't been to Haiti since everything hit, but apparently uh, COVID hasn't been all that bad down there. At least as of a few weeks ago, it hadn't been all that bad down there. And some of the students uh, were saying that, or I don't know they were students, it could have just been their neighbors, were saying either that this is all, that COVID-19 is all made up and these you know crazy white people have made up this, made up this thing and it's not really happening. And then others said, no, it's real, but God is finally protecting us after all the hurricanes and earthquakes and all the disease and, you know, uh, Hillary stealing our money and all that sort of stuff. God's finally protecting us from this thing. Yeah, really, because, you know, yeah, it's like, throw us a bone in Haiti. <laughs> Oh yeah, and, <laughs> and fortunately they're finally getting that bone. I think. Um, so, so the the interesting thing about that question is is really what lies behind that question, and it is I think it does speak to God's image in us. We look at a world that we we can recognize these things are self evident that the world is not as it ought to be. It is broken. It is bent. There is suffering. And, and there's something deep within us that says this ought not be so. Um, and so I think there's I think there really is a lot that rests in that question. And I think the desire to have that question answered is a good thing. I think it um, I think the, the moment that somebody steps aside from that question of why and what gives Lord which is really is kind of the question that the psalmist asks over and over again, you know, how long O Lord, uh, you know, look at all the suffering I'm enduring. Um, you know, why, why won't you rise up and do something about it? Um, I think the moment that we get to where there's, where, where there's not an interest in having that question answered, where there's not kind of a cry out of our hearts that says, what gives Lord? I think that's a very dangerous place to be. And I think that's, I mean, that's the place of skepticism, and that's the place that, 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 that a purely naturalistic worldview will eventually take you. And I don't want to live in a world like that, uh, even though many, many folks in our culture are kind of living in that world that, that's completely been secularized and completely uh, devoid, been made completely devoid of anything transcendent in the world where there is meaning and there is purpose and there is direction and th there's also because of that a recognition that the world as it is is broken and waiting to be fully redeemed and put back together um so and so i i do try not to not... give simple answers to that Between, sort of question you're saying... because i think in asking the question there's a lot of good but that's the place you want people to be you want them to be in that position to be constantly mm. asking god why why is this happening you you want the you want that attitude you don't want people just saying throwing yeah. their hands up and saying that's the way it is right yes because i mean you think about the alternatives the alternatives are either kind of like a skeptic a cynicism and skepticism which is nihilism or the alternative is is tyranny because we're trying to impose this utopia which can't exist yet mm -hmm. because the kingdom you know we live in theological terms we, we we talk about the kingdom of god as in a now but not yet uh state of transition where yes the world has been redeemed because christ has died and been risen but there's also a not yet aspect of it that he is coming again to put the world back together and so we live in that in between which is a good place to live in fact it's 
it's it's where the priests in the Old Testament lived. They they're part of their ordination, if you will, of entering into the priesthood was was literally was literally sleeping in and resting in the threshold or the door frame between the temple and the outside the temple. And it's because that's where God's people are called to dwell. We inhabit this world and yet we look to the world to come. And, and, but, but not in an escapist sort of way, because that world that is yet to come is this world. He is making a new heaven and new earth. He's not obliterating the earth and, you know, us living in heaven for the rest of eternity. He's going to recreate his good creation because he made it and he loves it. He said, it's good. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I don't want, I, I don't want my people to live in this Pollyannish type of world where they think, oh, everything, you know, this suffering really doesn't matter and everything's already put back together and whatnot. But I also don't want them to live in, in, in a nihilistic reality that says this world's just messed up and, you know, might as well, you know, escape it. Um, that's not, that's not a good place either. Yeah. The uh, so you were an old time listener to the show. I noticed you had we got the Shalunatic mug there. That's a great shout out to Tass. Hopefully she's watching. Oh, she yes. sees that you've got the Shalunatic mug up there. What have you been listening? I talked to with her lately? earlier today through Messenger. What have you been listening to now that the Tom Shalou show isn't taking up three hours of airwaves? Oh, absolutely nothing. Nothing's worth listening to, Tom. <laughs> um, no, I so so honestly. I, I listen to a number of things. I probably listen to, I, I say probably, I definitely listen to far too many podcasts. Yeah, um, that's good. I, I get, but that's good. That's not good. It's far too many, Tom. Oh yeah. Well, you can do other things. That's why I like podcasts. Yes. Take the dog for a walk. I can mow. I can, I can wash dishes. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I, and I do try to stay on my feet doing stuff while I'm listening to podcasts. So I, I, I'm washing dishes. I'm cleaning up. I'm, you know, working on something else. I'm trying not to do too much multitasking. And I mean, I know all that is multitasking, but I'm trying to devote myself to things that don't really take up brain capacity. Um, and so, uh, mindless things like washing dishes, but, um, yeah, so, so I do listen to a number, a number of podcasts. Some of them are, are good and intellectually stimulating. Some are just, you know, interesting and passing the time. I don't know how how far you're wanting to go with that. No, no, it's a, I I I am probably more of a podcast listener than traditional mm. radio or television. Uh, I I have my Fox shows that I like to watch. I mm. watch Tucker at night. I watch uh, Laura yeah. Ingram, and I watch Gutfeld. Usually, Gutfeld the next day. I will watch the DVR of it. Yeah, but the I don't like watching shows in the in the daytime, and mm. you know radio. It's it's hard to listen to unless I'm in the car. So I like podcasts, but uh, I yeah. like. So in the car, in the car, I'll listen to in the car here in Atlanta. I'll I'll catch some of uh, Eric Erickson. Um, I'll catch uh, there there are a couple of other guys that I like down here. But I, I do listen to a good bit of sports radio if I'm in the car, or I listen to my podcasts. And I hop from podcast to podcast. I kind of binge listen to podcasts. Yeah. And so right now I'm listening to one that's a crime, a true crime podcast that uh, that I got interested in. And I listen to a lot. I used to listen to a lot of the Babylon Bee. Now I just uh, share their stuff online, and I don't listen to their podcast as much as I used to. But I'll listen to uh, uh, every once in a while. Uh, I'll listen to Megan Kelly, her new podcast, because she's got some really interesting interviews on there. Um, I like the guys. 
yeah, she's really good. I like longer form conversations. And so I actually enjoy Tucker's, uh, Tucker Carlson today, which is his long form interview right. that's on the Fox nation. Yeah. I, I like that far more than his TV show because I feel like he's interviewing far more interesting people and he's deep diving with them. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I, I watch Tucker and then I immediately go over and watch the Fox nation version of Tucker's show. So I get like, you know, tons of Tucker. I yeah. have nothing against Hannity, but yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. No, and that's, look, I, I, I know in saying that there are probably some who think, Oh yeah, he's just kind of a dyed in the wool Fox news guy. I'm not. There are things that Tucker says and beliefs he has that I that, that I don't share with him. Uh, I don't agree with every single thing. And that's not to say that I that I don't. Yeah, that's not. I obviously listen to him quite a bit because I I do agree with him quite a bit. But I do like the fact that he interviews folks that uh, that are kind of off the beaten path that yeah. aren't just political pundits. He he interviews real thinkers and uh, and he comes at things from a very interesting angle. Sometimes he's a little more populist than I am. Uh, I do tend to be a little bit more libertarian. Uh, and um, but but I, I yeah, so there are things there there are things about Tucker that I do really appreciate. Well, that's great, Pastor Adam. You are Adam Godbold. And boom, there phone, it is. Yeah, it's your phone yeah, changed and, your name today when you texted me. Uh, it, why doesn't how can your phone autocorrect your your spell your name wrong? I don't know. It's so it's so annoying because anytime I'm trying to like reply to an email on my phone, if it's somebody that maybe doesn't know me, I'll use my my full name and it always tries to correct it to gold bold which yeah. I get all the time, or it'll try to, it'll correct it and say God bowl with no D at the end. And I'm like, come on, this is very simple. This is very, very simple. You know me, my, you know, my phone is in my own name billing wise and everything. Yeah. It, and for some reason it can't remember how to spell my name. You know, and so I'll type it in and send it and it, and boom, I'll, I'll yeah, what do I? People must have mentioned this when you were growing up. Your name is Adam Godbold. It's like you were destined to yes. become a preacher. It's like Johnny Appleseed. It's, the guy was made to plant apple trees, right? You're God. What else are you gonna do? You're, you're not living according to like. You're not living out your calling if you're not casting appleseed. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I, I've actually I've actually uh, officiated a wedding before where my wife Lindsay is sitting on the front row and it's before the service and we're waiting. It was actually a wedding I did in a barn. It was a really interesting wedding. But people that came in uh, early were sitting behind her and they're looking at the bulletin and said, uh, "Check out this guy's name. You think that's a stage name?" And she turned <laughs> around and said, "It's not a stage name. It's my husband." And but yeah, no, I I. I get that all the time from folks that uh, find out that I'm a pastor that, Oh my goodness. Of course you had to be a pastor, but I didn't come from a line of pastors. Like my dad wasn't a pastor. I don't like, grandfather, great grandfather. None of that. None of those were pastors, but supposedly uh, the first God bold was a, was a minister. He was a, a German missionary to England and God bold is like the Anglicanized version of what his name was. Uh, he was given the name God bold. And um, and that's the Anglican version of it, Godbold, because in Germany it had been like Goldbolt or yep. something to that effect. But um, yeah, Fantastic. here it is. Uh, pastor didn't grow up in a pastor's family or anything like. That. I did grow up in church, but uh, 
didn't grow up in a pastor's family. Yeah. Well, what else are you going to do? With I'm an glad we like got that. to do this, and I'm glad you're a part of the locals community. Like I said, this is the first of many interviews. There's a bunch of interesting people that I've met through this local site, and hopefully I want to kind of talk to all of them one at a time. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I'm, yeah, I'm glad to be glad to be on here, and I'm, I'm so glad that you asked me to do this, Tom. This really was fun, and um, yeah, I appreciate it. That's great. Well, keep in touch. Hey, you, now you remember why I called the first time, right? I don't remember. Okay, so so it, it, it was actually day one of your show, and I had just gotten a copy because uh, your show what started in June, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, think I had just gotten the the book came out around the same time. Yes, yes. So the book came out, uh, I think, in early June, maybe, because I had told my wife Lindsay, I said. The only thing I want for Father's Day, we were expecting our seventh kid. Yep, I meant to have my copy here, uh, but I, but I forgot to grab it. But your book came out and or was coming out, and I told my wife all I want is a copy of that book. That's all I want. I don't want any. We don't really go big on Mother's Day, Father's Day. We're kind of cynical about them. But uh, your book was coming out, and so she she hunted down a copy, a signed copy, at some you know kitschy little bookstore up there, probably in Brooklyn or something, yeah. and ordered it and I got that for for Father's Day and so day one when your show came out I called and said hey I'm a mean dad and uh uh and uh, I wanted to talk with you and I was one of the one of the first callers I guess and uh you told me please finish read the book and and email me once you finish and so a couple of weeks later I'd finished it and I sent you an email and then I called back in and I uh, I called you know every few weeks or so and uh but I I I, I promise you, I loved that book. I'm not just saying that because we're talking. I really, it was such a fun, it was a fun book to read, and it really was a meaningful book to read. Um, it's, yeah, it was a very meaningful book. There's a lot, there's a lot of depth and richness in it, and uh, and of course, it was just so fun to read. That is great, and I guess it rang true for you, even though you're much younger than me. I was born in 66. See, I was born in 81. Yeah, I was already in high school. I'm, I'm quite a bit, but, but I, but I felt like so I felt like you were growing up in that period, and of course you were. I felt like you were growing up in that period between my dad's upbringing and mine, and so there was some, there was some, there was some of your experience that I knew yeah. growing up, and, and but some of it I knew, yeah, that is a little bit more akin to my dad's upbringing. But you know, my dad was born in '55, I was born in '81, and so you were right there. Uh, kind of in the middle, but so much of it, so much of it was reminiscent of my childhood and my kids long for, for that. They ask uh, Lindsay and I all the time, what was it like growing up in the eighties? And we tell them, you know, and a lot better than it is now. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, was it really like full house? Was that the way life was? No. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the what's the uh, uh, Stranger Things? We tell them it's it really is like the show Stranger Things, only you know less 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 of the supernatural, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, you jump on your bike, you ride off, and you see your parents a few hours later for dinner time and whatnot. Life was so much simpler back then. Not everybody had nobody had cell phones. Yeah, exactly. Well, Pastor yeah. Adam, so great to talk to you. This was fantastic, and hopefully the folks at locals will enjoy it too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Hey, let me know when we can do this again. This was a lot of fun. I'd love it. Maybe we'll bring Tass in right. and she can draw it. 
Oh, that would be fun. That would be fun. <laughs> All righty. We'll see you later. Pastor out.